It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, February 4th, 2024. I'm Jared Halpern. Americans are feeling better about the economy, but are policymakers feeling as optimistic? The economic outlook is uncertain, and we remain highly attentive to inflation risks. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It seems to be a legal fight over the border, but it may end up marking the beginning of a debate over states' rights and how far a governor can go. And so the question is, do they just have to watch the nightmare unfold? Is Texas just a pedestrian uh, to its own border? That's hard to accept. I mean, Texas is still a sovereign state. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. You are feeling a lot better about the U.S. economy this year. At least that's what American consumers told researchers at the conference board responsible for reporting out the Consumer Confidence Index, a measurement of how Americans assess both current and future economic outlooks. This week, that index was up for the third straight month, a reading of 114.8. That is the highest it's measured in two years. And while spending is also up, consumers are still hesitant to make those big purchases like homes and cars. Another economic indicator out this week, the unemployment rate at 3.7 percent as employers added 353,000 jobs last month, a burst of hiring that surprised analysts expectations. And job growth was vast. Retailers, healthcare firms, and manufacturers all adding jobs. At the Federal Reserve, the optimism is a bit more restrained. The economy has surprised forecasters in many ways since the pandemic, and ongoing progress toward our 2% inflation objective is not assured. The economic outlook is uncertain, and we remain highly attentive to inflation risks. That's Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell explaining why the central bank is holding those record high interest rates steady for now, though he says he expects interest rate cuts later this year. What does that tell us about inflation and how fast prices may drop for groceries, gas and everything else you buy? For that, I asked Fox Business Network's White House correspondent Edward Lawrence. It was expected for this meeting. The surprise was the next meeting. So the Fed chairman, in one of the uh, responses to my question, actually, to him, he was basically saying that uh, – so the markets believed that March was the first rate cut. And for, for that's important because when money is cheaper, you're going to see more companies then borrow money, and that boosts the economy, that boosts the markets, that boosts profit uh, bottom lines. So they needed – they wanted the rate cut in March. The question, in the answer to question to me, the the um, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell basically said, you know, we he does not believe it's likely the committee will be in a place in March to have a rate cut, which then pushes it down the road a little bit further, which is the reason that you saw the market react uh, the moment he said that, uh, down 600 points. It was up 300. It finished down 300. So it was a 600-point swing. It's amazing how one person's <laughs> one sentence can do that to the markets. I guess not everybody, but when you're Jay Powell. I mean, yeah, Ben Bernanke years ago made a, made a joke, and it dropped the market 1,000 points. So the Fed chairman has, is very careful about what he says. But, you know, I think this was a message to the markets. So what has happened? 
had happened at the end of last year is that you know the markets wanted to see a pause for the last three meetings, and that's exactly or the last two meetings of last year, and that's exactly what happened. The Fed though was forecasting a rate hike uh, at the end of last year, so the markets I think kind of got the feeling: look, we can de- dictate what's going on. We're going to say there's a pause. There was a pause. We're going to say there's a pause again. There was a pause again. I think this was a message yesterday from the Fed chairman. I think this was a message from the Fed chairman to the doctor to the markets saying, look, we run monetary policy, not you. And therefore, you want the March meeting. It's not going to happen at March. I think that's what he was saying. Let's talk about what the the rate hikes and cuts and, and staying the same means, because the rate increases that happened, you know, month after month or meeting after meeting was all tied to inflation, trying to bring inflation down or at least stabilize it. The, the idea, I guess, being that once we saw that stop, that was a sign that inflation's moving in the right direction. Is that what the Fed is signaling here, uh, that, you know, inflation's moving in the right direction, but it's not at a place yet where they can cut rates? Yeah, and that's exactly what the Fed chairman said, yeah. The, the signal here with a pause is that we've done good work, inflation has come down, but we're not there yet. Uh, and the, the cuts are very interesting during election year. The Fed generally shies away from rate cuts or rate hikes mm. during an election year. For them to forecast at the end of last year that there would be rate cuts this year, it's very interesting. It, it says either there's going to be extreme weakness in the economy where they need to have those cuts. But I think what the Fed chairman is trying to say is that the for them, the normal rate, normal interest rate is lower than where it is right now. Uh, our star for those geeks out there is, <laughs> is a little bit lower than where it is right now. And I think the Fed Reserve wants to get just one or two more hikes to that point uh, in the four something range, upper fours. The inflation numbers, and there's a lot of different ways to read it, but kind of that, that I guess, base level is about just over 3% right, right now, right? What does the Federal Reserve want that number to book? Right. It has to be 2%. That's their okay. 2% target is what they want. There's two measures of inflation that we use, PCE inflation, which is what the Federal Reserve looks at, and CPI inflation, which is what the all of us feel. Mm-hmm. Um, CPI inflation is actually increasing overall, which is not a good thing. Um, PCE inflation is kind of moving sideways, but coming down a little bit. Um, the PCE inflation is under, is 2.6% overall, and it's 2.9% for core. That's without food and energy prices. The P- CPI inflation, what we all feel, is 3.5% uh, overall and 3.9% with core. That's way too high. The Federal Reserve would like to see both of those measures in the two range, and at least their measure, this, this PCE inflation, at 2%, and neither of them are there yet. So they're not quite done. I want to switch gears a little bit because the other big economic report that they came out this week uh, was consumer confidence. Yeah. was really good. I mean, that's yeah. surging. Why? Yeah. What, what's behind that? I, I think you're seeing a number of things. People at the gas pumps are seeing gas prices come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, About well, $3 a gallon now. Exactly. Average, a little bit yeah, over. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Um, so gas prices are coming down. Inflate the, the rate of price increase is also coming down. And people are just getting used to the higher prices, uh, good or bad, at this moment. You did see wages increase. Uh, there's oh. been a cycle of wages. In- so people are making more. Um, but when it comes to that gas price number, you know, it, it's sort of a false narrative. In speaking. So g- oil prices are rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, the barrel of oil is somewhere in the upper 70s range, uh, lower 80s. So the gas prices, if, if that trickles down, should be higher. But that shows that the demand is weaker for gas. So people just 
aren't driving as much. Um, and so therefore it's down. So if people start to feel better, they're going to start to go out more. They're going to start to drive more. That'll push the price up to where it should be. So it's a double-edged sword when you talk about gas prices and the feeling. But yes, the the more people feel better about the economy now than they have in almost a year. Is that what the stock market's responding to? Stock market looks six months out. So the stock market is responding to the fact that in six months, money is going to be cheaper. They're going to be able to do the investments they need to make. So it's it's not quite that. It's not quite that. that it's just they're seeing the consumer demand. They're seeing consumer prices go up. Consumer demand is still there. So you're seeing a lot of on the positive side where companies can make money. People are spending. Now, at some point, that's going to break because the credit card debt is $1.08 trillion, a record. And credit card debt since January of 2021 has increased. Since the day President Biden came into office, increased 40%. So people are servicing that debt at higher rates. The question, the million, billion-dollar question is when does that break? When does the consumer say, okay, I can't afford any more and I'm going to stop spending. The market believes that will not happen in the next six months, which is the reason we keep seeing the market go up and up and up and up. Is that tied to what you were talking about with the wage growth? It's, it's tied to the wage growth. People are able to manage the debt right now because um, you know, credit cards are at, what, 28%, yeah. 27%, something like that. So they're able to manage it right now. But if there is something that happens in the economy where wages fall, and, and that's actually what's happening right now. The, the Fed is saying, the Federal Reserve's chairman is seeing that wages are coming back. The wage increases aren't as much as they were a year ago, right? So the wage increases, the, the amount that people can go out and make is less. And at some point, that's not going to be enough to cover the debt that is that is coming down the pike. But the, the, the way it's good for the Federal Reserve that wage increases aren't as big because that means they're getting closer to their 2% target. So yeah, I mean, that, that's the caveat with, with like... Inflation, though, right, is like yeah. the things that like feel good, like low unemployment and, and wage growth that can like hike inflation. That can right? mess so. inflation, yes. <laughs> and that, that is the problem, right? I mean, so it's, it's like a, two, two competing levers almost. And you kind of want both levers down. But yeah. <laughs> well, and, and this is what the Federal Reserve found under the end of the Trump administration, right? Before COVID, pre-COVID. They were shocked. Again, I did these stories. They were shocked that you had low inflation and low on a record low unemployment rate, and they couldn't figure out how that was happening. Then COVID hit, all bets went off, and now, so we're back. So they're trying to get back to that sweet spot of having low inflation as well as low unemployment. Now we have the low unemployment, they're trying to bring that inflation back down. Is there a concern as the inflation comes down that the unemployment goes up, or is that a trend that, that does, I mean, job it, growth it, still seems to be pretty healthy. It's not a concern, it's an expectation. Okay. Um, that w as inflation comes back down, you will start to see as the Federal Reserve is doing their work to get inflation down, you will see the economy slow. You will see more people lose their jobs. And we're starting to see those layoffs. Um, I saw a stat. Layoffs were up something like 136 percent this month compared to the month last year at this time. So the Federal Reserve believes the unemployment rate should be 4.1 percent. It's okay. 3.7. OK. So that means job losses. Where are there any industries that get hit harder than others? Is it manufacturing? It just depends on it does where it is, right? So if people can't afford their credit cards anymore, then they stop traveling. So it's the travel and leisure. Okay. You know, if companies can't afford to make their debt payments on the, the money they have, then it's manufacturing, right? Because then they have to slow down and, and cut jobs. It just depends on where that weak spot is and where that bubble sort of pops. And, and that's not an expectation or prediction that the Fed share would make. 
No, it's not. Oh, they do see weakness in certain areas. They see weakness in, in housing, for example, um, because mortgage rates have been higher. So it's a little bit weaker than, than it was two years ago or three years ago. But there are certain sectors that do see weakness. But no, there's no, there's no real prediction. You can say this is where the job losses are coming from. Obviously, we're in an election year. The economy is always the number one issue in an election. I think that the Biden administration, the White House, has felt some frustration that they're not getting a little bit more credit for a lot of the gains that they have seen. I was curious when the consumer confidence number came out, if that sort of speaks to that concern, because that to me seems like it's always a lagging indicator, right? Like how comfortable people are in their own economic situation is probably the last thing that goes up, right? Especially after the last two, three years we've had. It is. But when you see a number like that, his poll numbers should be. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Better. So people are not equating the better economy with Bidenomics or President Biden. And that's the problem, which is the reason you see the president day after day after day go out and week after week, I should say, and go out and and pitch his message of the economy is better than you think. The economy is better than you think. But what people are seeing really is that when he came into office uh, three years ago, I wasn't paying this much for eggs, groceries, you name it. I wasn't paying as much. And that is where the frustration of people are. They see the rise in prices, the higher level since he got into office. And it's up 17.6% since the month President Biden got into office. Um, Inflation prices overall are up. And energy prices are up. And that's where they feel energy prices are up. You turn to natural gas prices are up from the month President Biden came into office. And that's pinching. You know, people don't just want to get back to where they were, they would like to get ahead. And that's the problem. What is the correlation with energy prices going up? I mean, I know that's a global market because you and I have talked about how production is like at record highs domestically, that the U.S. is producing more oil and natural gas, I think, than any plant, any country on the planet in the history of, of like this energy sector. So why isn't that driving down cost? Is it because of Russia and the Middle East? It's demand. Is what it okay. is. It's so because people aren't taking as many trips, aren't driving. I mean, a lot of people. And it's not just the United States. They can just work from home now. <laughs> right. And it's not just that. And that's part of it. Yeah. That is ab- you aren't taking that commute. Yeah. That is absolutely part of it. But it's also not just the United States. You have to look at China. Okay. And a- as China's reopening, um, you know, gas prices again are higher. But if you look at what China's done, they're getting record amount of oil from Russia and Iran. And those are not coming out of the global oil supply that we use in the United States. Because they're the only buyers right now. Correct. Russian and Iranian oil. Basically. Uh, <laughs> India is buying some also. But but basically, China is the major buyer of that. But that take China's demand out of the global market. And that's why you're not seeing go- – uh, another reason you're not seeing gas prices go up. If China comes back into the global market and starts buying that what they need to, as they open up uh, or as they have opened up, then you're going to see the prices – pressure on prices even more. So – yeah, it, it's all can interconnected. I'll finish with this. Just based on kind of your reporting with the Fed and how you cover the Biden administration here, do you expect any other major rollouts here in this election year from the administration to see what they can do to bring prices down further? Absolutely. And not just to talk about prices, about what he's spending. So what you're going to see is you're going to see further rollouts about the CHIPS Act mm-hmm. and how the manufacturing. Look what we've done with manufacturing. We spent this and this and this. Um, one of the, the problems President Biden has and one of the, the issues there's going to be a slowdown, but it's being pushed off 
in part because of government spending. So you're having the transportation bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. He's rolling out all that spending now. So it hits right around the time people are voting. And that's why he's hoping, the president's hoping, the administration hopes that people will start to feel better about the economy as they see all this spending going. And that pushes the recession or pushes the slowdown economically till after the elections. And then, well, there's nothing anybody can do once he's reelected. And that's that's the hope of the administration. What's the next big data point you'll be looking at? Uh, the next one that's coming up, uh, obviously, the jobs reports that come out are, are huge. Um, the CPI inflation, the one that we all feel, is coming out next. If that inflation number is going up again uh, or even moving sideways, I think there's pressure on the Federal Reserve to, again, hold off the pauses, not just March, but their May meeting, which is the next one. And the markets are saying now, oh, there's going to be a cut in May. We're going to make the cut in May. So the May meeting is now in focus uh, for the markets. And if, if, again, if inflation, that CPI inflation number comes in, going up or sideways, that's going to put pressure on the Fed not to raise again in May. All right, we'll talk uh, certainly before then, but certainly after <laughs> yeah. then as well. Thanks, Edward. Thanks, Jared. In late January, the Supreme Court lifted an order by a federal appeals court, an order that had said Border Patrol agents could not interfere with razor wire that the state of Texas had erected along the border, except in medical emergencies. That was as thousands of migrants were pouring across every day. After that, the lieutenant governor of Texas said even so, they would not stop putting razor wire up along the border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott explained on Fox's America's Newsroom the Supreme Court decision just sent the matter back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's two sentences. There, there was no opinion about anything about razor wire or what Texas is doing or anything like that. He explained that because the federal government's failed to protect his state, he's invoked Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. He says an invasion is happening. The supremacy clause means that the Constitution itself is the supreme law of the land. The Constitution itself provides Texas with a right of self-defense in this case, because the United States has abandoned its responsibility to defend Texas. 25 Republican governors have expressed support for Abbott, including South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, who told Fox News from the border. Uh, the funneling of the human trafficking and the drugs comes across this border, comes into my state through my tribal reservations. It devastates my people. That's why I'm proud to stand with Governor Abbott and uh, his people here that are working to keep America safe. Before the Supreme Court's decision, the state of Texas took over a large city-owned park in Eagle Pass right along the border. And Fox's Matt Finn was there when it happened over two weeks ago. The Texas National Guard has seized control of this park and some surrounding land along the river, put up fencing and razor wire, and kicked out federal Border Patrol agents. And Finn was there this past week as well, where border agents gave an indication the razor wire along Shelby Park might be working. Here in Eagle Pass, the large migrant groups have all but stopped. And now we have some new numbers from CBP sources who say in the last week of January, 71% of the illegal apprehensions at the southern border happened in Arizona and California. Last week, Homeland Security's second request for access to the land was rejected by the Texas Attorney General. And Governor Abbott's recently signed law allowing state law enforcement to arrest migrants for crossing into the state illegally has been implemented as well. Now, the Supreme Court's recent decision did not weigh the tensions between state and federal law here on the merits. 
and legal experts say the justices may now need to. Well, the rationale for the Supreme Court is left to one's imagination. They did not issue an opinion on the merits. George Washington University Law School professor Jonathan Turley. What they did was they lifted the injunction on the federal government removing the razor wire. So the Biden administration can go ahead and clear that path. It did not say why it was doing that, and it did not say what it would do on the more general question of Texas's right to unilaterally protect its own border. Now, Abbott said this, that the Biden administration's failure to stop and detain all of these migrants coming means that he's declared an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, to invoke Texas's constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. He wrote, that authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. If the Supreme Court considers that at some point, which I imagine they they would, do they mull that term, invasion? And what does that have to look like to qualify? Texas is going to have a difficult time making this case to the federal courts. If you look at the history of that provision, it's pretty clear that they were referring to an invasion in the classic sense of an organized army, a foreign power invading uh, this state. It's important to remember that the Constitution was ratified after the collapse of the Articles of Confederation. We needed a central federal government. But states had genuine concerns about many issues, including invasion. There was a constant threat, an actual invasion from a foreign power. So this provision refers to invasion in that more classic sense. It also refers to an imminent danger. But that is likely to be a term of art that is read within context of the provision itself, that there is no question that what is occurring on our southern border is a national security risk. There's no question that it's an imminent danger to Texas. All of that, I I think Texas would have few people who would disagree with its position. But I'm afraid there's a a difficult jump to make in fitting it within this provision. Both the invasion and this other phrase of imminent danger seem to have been directed towards an actual invasion, uh, not a constructive invasion of this kind. Keep in mind that hundreds of thousands of immigrants have crossed the border for decades. And this is not the first time that objections have been made Uh, to the Mm -hmm. lack of protection along that border. It's doubtful that many federal judges would read this provision so broadly. Professor, what about this compact theory, this idea that the federal government, in the view of Texas, has broken its compact with the state and that that directly gets to the idea of state supremacy? Well, once again, many of us agree entirely with Governor Abbott on the merits of his complaint. The concern here is just simply the means that he can use in order to get a remedy. There is no question in my mind that Governor Abbott is right, that the federal government has broken its compact with Texas and other border states. Uh, The Biden administration uh, has allowed an effectively open border And the results are a danger to this country in terms of the overwhelming numbers coming across the southern border. 
But the question is how that translates into actual constitutional options for the state of Texas. Um, That's a much more difficult proposition. The Supreme Court for decades has recognized considerable deference to the federal government along the border. Uh, They tend to allow presidents to establish policies and priorities in the level of enforcement. I don't think that's going to change. So saying that the federal government is violating its compact with the state, in my view, is unassailable. What is more difficult is what the state can do about it. Now, having said all of that, what we don't know is what inherent powers the Supreme Court might recognize in the states. Concluding that this is not a constitutional invasion does not mean that Texas is defenseless, that it has to rely entirely on the Biden administration. The administration has allowed an open border between Mexico and Texas. It is destroying communities throughout Texas. The suggestion of the Biden administration is that Texas has nothing to do about that. That is, they have no options. They have to literally stand by and watch their state overwhelmed uh, by the incoming migrants. That's the point that I think Texas needs to focus more on, and that is, what are the inherent powers of a state, even recognizing uh, the deference given to the federal government? Professor, does um, do we look at SB 1070 and what happened in Arizona, gosh, over a decade ago when the state of Arizona um, tried to implement new laws uh, that, that gave the state more power in addressing immigration. And that included like the what well, it was called then the show me your papers, you know, you, that an officer could upon if he suspected that, that you were in the country illegally, um, that they could ask for you to prove that, you know, that you're lawfully here. How much does um, what we already know about um, states pushing for, uh, I guess, having their own rules as it relates to immigration, how much will that play into any future legal fight? Well, it is interesting that when the Supreme Court considered the Arizona case, they were convinced by the Obama administration that this could be a slippery slope, that they couldn't allow 50 states to develop their own immigration laws, in some cases uh, conflicting with the federal enforcement programs. Well, this is the flip side of that coin. By giving the federal government such deference, the Supreme Court has left these states virtually unprotected by anything other than the faith and fealty of the federal government. I mean, so now you have the inevitable conclusion to Arizona. You know, the question that was raised back when the Supreme Court was considering Arizona was what a state could do if the federal government just decided not to enforce immigration laws. That's something that we debated at that time as to what the most extreme circumstances could be. We now have that extreme circumstance. Secretary Mayorkas has done, in my view, a perfectly horrid job. Uh, there's no question in my mind that he is not up to this task. And that's putting it nicely. I mean, his critics believe that he is actively frustrating enforcement. But whatever the motivation, it's clear the Biden administration is not using the full extent of its authority uh, to close this border uh, or at least get it under some control. So 
in some ways, the hypothetical that many of us debated when the Arizona case was before the Supreme Court has come into reality. I mean, the Biden administration came into office in a very pro-immigration stance, and they took apart much of the Trump policies and practices. At the same time, the president's own language was seen as encouraging migrants to come to the country. And then finally, Secretary Mayorkas uh, has been viewed as a very pro-migrant Secretary of Homeland Security. All of these elements came together for a perfect nightmare in Texas. And so the question is, do they just have to watch the nightmare unfold? Is Texas just a pedestrian uh, to its own border? That's hard to accept. I mean, Texas is still a sovereign state. And there was an understanding when the states uh, came into this union uh, that they would reserve certain inherent powers. So the court has much to answer for here. They basically gave a green light to the federal government with few limits. Well, the Biden administration has seen that hole and they've driven a semi-truck through it. Finally, just to kind of put a, a, a bow on this conversation, Professor, what is what does belong to the federal government? We've heard about it um, during Arizona, the Arizona case that you and I just talked about. And we heard it during the Trump administration that immigration broadly belongs under the purview of the of the federal government. Uh, and Congress is the one that passed the Immigration Nationality Act, right? Um, the INA. I understand that pertains to who's in charge of naturalization issues, right? That not a state, but the federal government, but also matters of defense, our borders, national security, all of that is under the purview of the federal government as well, right? Is is that what we're talking about here, that, that the state, as you just said, is looking at itself like, are we just bystanders here and you guys have all the power? I think this is the issue that notably in the Arizona case, it was implied preemption that the court decided in favor of the Obama administration. It said that basically the federal government has occupied this field with so many laws, there's very little room for the states. That's very dangerous for states on the border like Texas uh, that are not actually prohibited from immigration uh, enforcement under federal law. So the blame here, I think, rests equally with uh, all three branches. Obviously, the Biden administration has allowed an open border to exist. Congress has failed uh, to add specificity to to invest states with greater authority vis-a-vis the federal government. And the courts uh, have done very little to explain what the inherent powers of a state might be. So when we talk about who owns what, there is still an ambiguity there. The court has basically said that the federal government controls the border, Mm. and that means access and uh, egress through the border. But obviously, the state also has an interest along the border. So I think the court's going to have to clean up the mess it created with these sweeping decisions, or at least it's going to have to clarify and say that the states have no longer any real control over their borders. Um, That would be quite a blow for states' rights. And the question is, is the court willing to do that, or is it willing to tack back a bit and to say, regardless of any deference to the federal government, there still remains a certain degree of self-protection that rests with the states.
Oh, sounds like the sounds like we're going to have an interesting legal conversations ahead. Always an honor to speak with you, Professor Charlie. Thanks for joining. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, Texas Representative Tony Gonzalez weighs in on the border crisis, a potential bipartisan bill to address it, and efforts to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security. Plus, Fox business anchor Taylor Riggs discusses why so many Americans don't feel good about the economy, despite some recent positive data. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.